Hi, and welcome to Pillsbury's Industry Insights Podcast, where we discuss current legal and practical issues in finance and related sectors. I'm Joel Simon, a finance partner at the international law firm Pillsbury Winthrop Shaw Pittman. And thank you to our listeners who are joining us today, wherever you are. Today, I'll be speaking with Aaron Hutman, a partner in Pillsbury's international trade practice. Aaron is an established authority on some of the most important issues affecting trade, banking, and investment, helping clients understand, anticipate, and manage problems ranging from anti-money laundering and anti-corruption to investment rules and trade disputes. His clients include defense companies, private equity and hedge funds, banks, multinational corporations, energy industry participants, social media and technology leaders, startups, and governments around the world. Hi, Joel. Thank you very much for having me here today. It's great to have you here, Aaron, and I'm really looking forward to our discussion today. It seems every time there's good news about something happening either in the medical field or the procurement field, um, even household items, um, there's somehow an adjoining accusation of illegality or corruption or money laundering. Uh, What can you tell us about the current crisis that causes a surge in these types of problems? Well, absolutely. As I think we all know, the world has been turned on its head. And it's, again, a pandemic, so global in scope, not just in the United States, but major economies and spreading around the developing world, even as we speak. And this means that you've had a tremendous disruption to the normal way that we do business. And there are a couple of ways that this manifests itself. And so uh, we were familiar from particularly the early days. There were scarcity and surges in demand. The things we're most familiar with are masks, medicine, ventilators, but things like uh, Purell and uh, toilet paper were all part of that feeling of uh, scarcity. And so uh, both in the United States, but in markets around the world, we have manufacturing and production. There was a lot of money chasing too few goods all of a sudden for too few markets. And when it comes to medicine or masks or uh, items that are uh, you know, a necessity in a time of pandemic, uh, when money is no issue, somebody has to decide who gets what. And that is the uh, fertile ground for both official and commercial drivers. As I mentioned, supply chains were disrupted. Companies and governments had to adapt, and that left room for fraud and getting corruption, and then room for money laundering and mistakes. We've had huge expenditures by governments and international organizations. I mean, the, the numbers are staggering. It seems every week there's a, a new announcement of hundreds of billions of dollars in the United States, trillions of dollars that are being put out into the you know, national or global economy. And it's not only the United States government, but governments around the world and the international organization, multilateral funding uh, organizations. That's a lot of money going out there. And in any procurement environment, there's room for um, corruption, for fraud, for mistakes and Uh, This is just the the usual on steroids, a level we've never seen. Um, And, you know, where governments try to create order amidst this chaos and you put officials in charge, well, that just offers even more opportunity, particularly in poorer countries or Western governments or Western companies or investors who need something to offer that little extra, that red envelope in China, that uh, extra payment in the Middle East or Africa or Latin America to get what they need faster. It sounds to me like a perfect storm uh, for corruption where you have all of those different constituencies 
any one of which uh, could have a problem, uh, but with all of them at the same time at a heightened at a heightened level with the surge of demand and and all the money being put out, um, it, it really sets the stage for uh, I think your expertise to come in uh, in in the practice uh, that that you have. Uh, so you must be really busy these days. It, it certainly has not been a dull year. We might be working from home, but we're working around the clock. And you know the challenge is really global in scope. And I think the, the follow-on from all of the, those factors that I just described in the perfect storm, as you put it, is that ultimately this period in history is going to start to calm down. And there's going to be an accounting and a look back. And we, we expect to see a wave of enforcement uh, over the next uh, two or maybe even more years looking back at this period. And we want to get the word out to our contacts and our clients and uh, to people in the economy to uh, to pay attention, to just be aware of it and try to protect themselves before that look back happens, to be on the right side of the wave. And, uh, you know, there, there are a lot of rules out there that people might not be aware of. And we want to make people aware of those rules and what some of the best practices are so that they can begin to inoculate to protect themselves and take those steps now. And, and I know, Aaron, that a lot of these rules have been in place for a long time, um, and whenever there's a particular type of crisis, some of them get focused on more than others, but maybe you could walk us through uh, what what a number of those are. We probably don't have time for all of them, but but certainly if you hit the, the main ones, I think that would be great. Yeah, yeah I'll start with uh, a focus in the United States, then we'll take the aperture a little broader and look around the world. And so uh, most people are familiar with Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, or FCPA, and that is the anti-corruption, core anti-corruption rule of the United States uh, with broad extraterritorial application and practice, and uh, just a huge set of tombstones of large fines that companies around the world have suffered. And so the FCPA has both anti-bribery, uh, but then also uh, books and records provisions that apply to issuers of securities in the United States. And so Traditional bribery, giving something, uh, promising something of value to a foreign official um, of a jurisdiction or organization outside of the United States with an intent to influence that official to secure an improper advantage in order to obtain or retain business, that traditional official bribery scenario, that's the FCPA. And then the need to have clear books and records, to not have slush funds on the side. Um, and the books and records provision is enforced by the SEC for issues of securities in the United States. Um, and those violations don't necessarily have to have a material correct, uh, connection to the bribery. Um, so that's official corruption. Then we have rules for uh, commercial bribery. And so the Travel Act and various state anti-bribery rules can apply to bribery, even if there's no public official involved. There are criminal anti-money laundering rules, 18 U.S.C., 1956, and 1957, that provide for penalties where there are transactions that involve a property or funds that have an illicit source and where the people involved in the transaction know that there's some sort of unlawful activity. They don't necessarily have to know what. And in fact, there is a certain set, uh, set list of predicate offenses that relate to the underlying assets or uh, property in the transaction. And so these can come into play because Anti-corruption is one of those predicate offenses, but it's used by U.S. officials. So, for example, with FIFA, 
with the international uh, organization for uh, soccer, football, as we call it outside the United States. Um, this was a major corruption scandal, but the U.S. took the lead in prosecuting it, and one of the key sets of laws they used were actually any money laundering laws, as opposed to the FCPA. Then there's wire fraud, so any time that there is uh, the, the sending of money over the wires, interstate commerce or international commerce, there are wire fraud statutes, and those, again, can be used to uh, prosecute both anti-corruption and anti-money laundering events. So, for example, in the Paul Manafort situation, what we think of as kind of a money laundering scenario, well, that was actually prosecuted uh, primarily by a wire fraud. And all of these rules have the same, what we call the long-arm uh, provisions. They apply to U.S. persons uh, and companies, but they also apply to any activity in the United States or through U.S. commerce, whether it is U.S. banking uh, or even sometimes the use of U.S. email or just a meeting that happens to happen in New York or San Francisco or Los Angeles. When people outside the United States engage in prohibited activity with people in the United States, there can be conspiracy and other charges. So when you're using representatives or you have partners outside the United States, U.S. persons and the people they interact with can become subject to U.S. jurisdiction in these ways. Um, and then taking a uh, step back, you have uh, rules in other countries, whether it be the U.K. Bribery Act uh, and then multilateral uh, institutions. You mentioned uh, individuals who, who act in these ways who have knowledge of what they're doing, but isn't there also uh, a problem when people just look the other way or do nothing? Oh, absolutely. That's a good question, and that comes up a lot uh, these days. So uh, for criminal purposes, the mens rea or the mental state, uh, you don't have to knowingly walk into a situation and say, I'm going to bribe somebody. Uh, the very often uh, companies find themselves in a situation where they have a representative who might be doing something wrong, and the company looks the other way or doesn't say anything. They, they're red flags. They can see that things are wrong. So willful blindness or... Um, you know, de deliberately not making yourself aware uh, of facts that are uh, seeming to lurk out there can be the basis for criminal prosecution in the United States. So from a best practices standpoint, what are some things that, that you would recommend to clients uh, to try to shore up their defenses in this area? Well, you know, as I said, there's going to be a look back uh, and a, a reconciliation of what's going on in these days. And so we really say to double down on the best practices and transaction due diligence, know your customer, KYC, vendor screening, accounting controls, that most companies have written compliance procedures that cover any money laundering, and corruption, export control, and sanctions, and trade, and privacy, and insider trading, and fraud, and so forth, your ethics plans, your code of conduct. Take a look at those. Make sure that they are as strong as they need to be. If you need to beef them up or put in special provisions for the pandemic time, for uh, the COVID-19 situation, go ahead and do it. Get as much as you can on the books and then make sure that you're implementing. Because looking back, that's one of the things that government officials are going to ask. Uh, they're going to ask, did you try to do the right thing? Were you being careful? Is there documentary evidence that you did this? And so I think that as you double down, one of the most important things for companies to do is if you're trying to do the right thing, make sure that you document it. Memos to the file, clear accounting records, good records within your compliance function, whether it be reporting or internal investigations or advice that you're giving out. Make sure that 
anybody who's looking back two years from now, even if, let's say, the current uh, attorneys or senior executives or compliance officials, maybe have moved on to other companies, make sure that somebody can look back and know what the company or the organization uh, or the individual investor was trying to do at that time. And so I think that's particularly important. There was a uh, town hall recently with the leadership of the Department of Justice and SEC and FBI looking at anti-corruption fraud issues. And they said a lot of really interesting things, both to emphasize that they are going to enforce, that they're ready, that they're there, they have the resources, and that they expect everybody to comply. But at the same time, they did say some things that made you think that they are willing to be realistic looking back as long as they understand that the company is trying to do the right thing. So one example that was given by Daniel Kahn, Deputy Chief of the DOG Fraud Division overseeing FCPA enforcement, said that, you know, it's a common story out there that somebody bribes a customs official, get their stuff out of a port or into a country. And that's something that you see in FCPA enforcement. And the comment was, well, if you, if there happens to be a payment to a customs official and you can show that the goal wasn't to obtain or retain business, you weren't trying to enrich yourself, but rather the payment went to the customs official because you were just trying to get medical equipment to protect your personnel, then maybe the U.S. government would look at that differently. And so it's a good example of why you need to get down what you're intending to do, that you really have that intent to comply. That's great advice, Aaron. Uh, thank you for that and for this terrific information-packed discussion on all these timely international trade issues. Absolutely. It's really been a pleasure, Joel. Thank you for organizing. Thanks for joining, Aaron. And now, for this week in history, we celebrate the shared birthday of two great men, each of whom soared in his own way. July 18, 1918, marks the birth of a man who was an activist, spent much of his adult life in prison, and in a wild turn of events, became not only the president of his country, but a respected and beloved world leader. Of course, I'm speaking of the great South African, Nelson Mandela. And three years later, the world welcomed the person who would become America's first astronaut to orbit the Earth, and eventually a U.S. Senator and presidential candidate, and the subject of several excellent books and films, the great John Glenn. Hopefully, we can all take some inspiration from these two great gentlemen and look to a bright future inspired by their leadership, their ideals, and their virtues. That's all for now. See you next week, and thank you for listening to Pillsbury's Industry Insights Podcast.